our Bibles out, if you would please, and open them up to Philippians chapter 4. And we are inching a little bit closer each week to finally finishing out the book of Philippians. And we've come to this 20th verse of chapter 4, and I've kind of got a little bit stuck on this verse because it's such an overwhelming topic. We could easily read this verse just as we're going down through that fourth chapter and Without very much thought, we would skip over the verse, not really thinking about it. But I think that the Apostle Paul really did think much about this verse as he wrote it. He inserts here a grand doxology. This is just a word of praise that he stops and gives to the Lord. He's just overflowing with this gratitude that he has for God's mercy upon him. And we remember here that we are reading a letter This is not the transcript of a sermon that Paul preached. And so I think that as Paul uh, said these words, he chose them very carefully, chose his thoughts carefully. In other letters that Paul wrote, he did the same. He would come to a particular place in the Scripture after writing Holy Spirit-inspired words, and he just sort of has to gather himself and let some of his emotions out. And here he gives praise to the Heavenly uh, Heavenly Father who deserves all glory for his great salvation. And we might think by observing the life of Paul, reading what he'd written in other places, that Paul was not likely to do this. In 2 Corinthians, he spoke of his trials for the gospel. And he said there were shipwrecks and there were stonings and there were beatings. There were dangers on the road as he traveled. And he also wrote that because of his faith in Christ, that he had become the off-scouring of the world. And so he was an outcast. And as he writes this letter, even this Philippian letter, he's been deprived of help and he's in preaching, or in prison rather, for preaching the gospel of Christ. Now, we think about all of those things, and those are not the stuff that, that praises are made of. And we would expect that somewhere in this letter that he would make a complaint. Uh, surely there would be a woe is me in here somewhere, but we don't find that. Instead, we find that he praises God, and he knows that God would deliver him out of his affliction. So we find no complaints in the book of Philippians. There are no uh, words of self-pity. He never even asks for relief. In fact, when he did receive help from the Philippian people, we've noticed in this fourth chapter how that he was sort of stumped and struggled with the way that he would thank them without at the same time not making them believe that he was actually dependent upon the gifts that they give and, or they gave and that that would be the reason for his contentment. And then further, as we read the first part of the letter, the tone is set for how the rest of this letter would go because he didn't write this for his own benefit. There we find that Paul was worried that they would be so upset about what had happened to him that instead he he writes to them and he says, everything that's happened to me is for the furtherance of the gospel. You need not worry about me. Everything that God has done is for the purpose of the gospel of Christ. Now, prison is not a place where anybody would want to be, and yet if prison gave him an opportunity to witness to people that otherwise could not be reached, then Paul was willing to do that. If there was any affliction that he received that would, that would enable him to reach someone else for the gospel of Christ, all of that was acceptable because if you remember, this is what Paul said that all of us are designed for. All of us are designed to suffer for Christ. And so if you have a message that's hated by the world and a message that's been rejected by the world, then you would expect that those who bring that message would also be hated and rejected. And that's the way that it's always been with the things of God. Uh, When Stephen gave that great message to 
the Jews right before he was martyred. He said, which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? Every time that the truth is given to hard-hearted, unregenerate people, the results of that are always predictable. Stephen was stoned for preaching the truth. The prophets were killed for preaching the truth of God's word. And Paul says that if you do the same, if you stand up for the word of God, then you can expect that you are going to suffer persecution. So Paul here has no complaint because he knows that this is exactly what he signed on for. I mean, goodness knows that the apostle Paul would be very much aware of what would happen if he professed faith in Christ. If you remember, he said that before he believed in Christ that he was injurious. He said that he was a persecutor of Christians. He said with the greatest zeal that he could possibly muster within himself, he went out looking for Christians either to kill them or to conduct them into prison. And so he knew that at the very moment that he trusted Christ, that there would be someone out there just like him who would come looking for him, who would be hot on his trail to try to bring him down. Now, if you just listen to what happened in Damascus just shortly after Paul was converted and baptized, in Acts chapter 9 it says, But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is very Christ. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. But their laying in wait was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him uh, down by the wall in a basket. And so from the very outset, just days after his conversion, the course of his life was set. The rest of his life was trouble. Now that's how men would see it, but that's not the way that Paul saw it. He saw it as an honor to suffer for Christ. Suffering for Jesus was the badge of his discipleship. It was the commendation that he received from God that he was just like the prophets. He was truly on God's side. And so we come down to the end of this letter and there is no complaint. He's only here considering how that God has been so gracious to him. God has allowed him to be in the ministry. He has allowed him to suffer for Christ. And not only that, but he's able to see such fruit of his ministry as these Philippian people are. They had received the gospel, and now they have begun to demonstrate their love for God by supporting him through their gifts. Now, that's the background of verse number 20. And if we just lightly read through this, we might well miss all of that if we just give it a cursory glance. And so when we come down to verse number 20, these are very important words that Paul speaks, and they are very carefully considered. So what does he say? What he says, now unto God and our Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And what a grand statement that 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 is. That's really the summation of all of our preaching. That's the design of everything that we do as Christians. We're to do everything that we do all to the glory of God. And so in the past two messages, what I've done is to come up with some reasons why we give God the glory. And I think that the list for doing that is endless. I mean, every day that you wake up, there, there's just a new reason why you would glorify God. And if you can't think of a reason, then there's all the recurring reasons that God gives us day by day. The psalmist said this about it. He, he says, Blessed be the Lord who daily loadeth us with benefits, even the God of our salvation, Selah. We are loaded with benefits. Well, there's no way that I could list all of those benefits, so I picked out just a few things. And there are ten things that are on my list for reasons that we give God the glory. Now, in two messages so far, I've listed the first four of those reasons. 
and uh, we're going to talk about those very briefly uh, again tonight, and then we'll move on and discuss a couple of more reasons why we give glory to God. Now, I ended, if you remember, the last lesson on this by stating that the first four reasons that we glorify God are actually out of my realm of being. And if you're a Christian, they're also out of your realm. Because these are things that God has done before me, before I ever came into existence. So first of all, we glorify God because of the creation of the Father. He created me for his own purposes, and without that creation, of course, I wouldn't be able to speak to you tonight. Our existence is dependent upon him, and he created us for that purpose of receiving glory from our lives. And so whenever we don't glorify God, if you're not a Christian, you can't glorify God, because that is the purpose for your life. The second thing that we glorify God is because of the creatures of the Father. And there I was speaking about God's providential care all of, over all of creation, in which God is a benevolent God over all types of his creatures. He's benevolent even over those who are not involved in his redemptive purposes. Well, if he is benevolent with them, then how much more is he to those who are a part of his redemptive purpose? I mean, even the unjust, even those who are enemies of God, receive some of his, some of his benefits. And so, as we read in the book of Matthew, uh, God seen, sends rain on the just and on the unjust, which is really a great comfort to those of us who are redeemed, because we know that if God does that for those who aren't redeemed, if he does it for the entire world, then how much more assurance do we have that God will shower down his blessings upon us and take care of us because we are his children? Then the third thing that we discussed is... We give glory to God because of the commission of the Father. Now, that is one that's truly beyond my realm of being because the commission that we're speaking of here is the one that was given to Christ before the foundation of the world. And that is that Christ would come into the world as a sacrifice for sin. And so before the first sin was ever committed, God had already prepared a way by which those who would become his enemies could actually be reconciled to him. And so God entered into an eternal covenant with his son, the covenant between the Father and the Son, in which Christ was commissioned to, to bear our sins upon the cross, and he gladly took that commission. And so that means that God had to become a man. God had to step down from glory in order that he might receive greater glory. And that's what Jesus said. He said that the Father is glorified in the Son. Now, the fourth reason that I gave you was because of the choice of the Father. We glorify him for that because this is also something that happened outside of my realm of being. I glorify God because his choice of his people was particular. For reasons that are found only in him, he chose some before the foundation of the world who would be the special recipients of his love and grace. And his choice was not based upon anything that I would do. Uh, God didn't look down through time and see that I would believe and, and therefore save me. No, if God looked down through time and was to see anything that I would be, he saw that I would not believe. And if he hadn't chosen me, I wouldn't believe. I would be just like the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 2, a child of wrath even as others. And so the scripture says that he has chosen some to eternal life, and those that he has chosen, he's called, justified, and glorified. 
And their calling comes through the gospel. And then God gives them the faith to receive that gospel. Then their justification comes through their faith. And the imputed righteousness of Christ is given to all of those who trust him. And then the final glorification comes to those who are believers through a divine translation from this earthly body that we have into a body that's made fit for the kingdom of heaven. And the Word of God describes that as being a body that's just like that of the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are four reasons that are beyond time. Those are God's considerations, and they don't involve any input on my part. But now that I am a child of God, and I have trusted Him by faith, I can recognize God as my Father, and I've entered into this newfound relationship. And He's more than just a Father by creation. He's not my Father in some kind of an impersonal way, so that, as some call it, we have the universal fatherhood of God or the universal brotherhood of man. In that sense, God is not my Father. God is a father only to those who have come into relationship with him by becoming sons of God through faith. And so that means that there has to be that relationship existing with the only begotten Son of Christ. And so now I can see and relate to God as my father. And now I want to give you some reasons why that we glorify him for that. I glorify him as my father. Well, number five, the fifth reason that I want to give you to glorify God is because of the compassion of the father. Now, once that God determined to love me and made his choice, there would come a time when I would be born. Now, I would come into the world because that fact was as sure as any because as Scripture says, my name was written down before the foundation of the world. And so God has all those individual names, which means those people must of necessity be born. But when I was born, I wasn't a child of God. I didn't come into the world uh, born as a baby, as a child of God. I would become a child of God, but I wasn't born that way. I wasn't born in a lovable state. Now, I do have to admit that I was certainly a beautiful baby, and I was good and filled with charm and all of that, simply irresistible, no doubt about any of those things. On a certain level, I I suppose you couldn't find a better specimen of of humanity than when I was born. But, But that's not the way that God saw me. God didn't see me that way. I came in as a child of wrath. And as the Word of God says, I was depraved from my mother's womb. I was undeserving of God's mercy and His grace. And further, as I grew up, I began to display what was down in my heart. An evil heart of unbelief was there, and an evil heart always begins to assert itself. And although I'd never killed anybody or done anything like that, I certainly did have all the potential to do it. And with Jesus' definition of murder that we find in Matthew chapter 5, I certainly was guilty because he describes anger there as murder. And I could certainly throw a tantrum with the best of them if I didn't get my way. Now, I really do thank God for this, though, that God saved me at a very early age. I thank him that I was born in a preacher's home. The very first public place that I was ever taken was was to church. And so I grew up in church under my father's preaching, and at a very early age, the Holy Spirit convicted me, and then I received Christ. But I remember as I was growing up as a, a young Christian that I would attend these testimony meetings that the church would have, and I would listen to others who got up and gave their testimony, and they would talk about a life of terrible acts and things that they'd been into. Uh, They talked about their cursing and their drinking, and they might tell about abusing others or even crimes that they have committed. And then they would talk about how God had saved them out of that horrible life. 
Well, I couldn't relate to any of that. I couldn't give that particular kind of testimony. But as I look back on it today, I can only thank God that he did save me at a very early age, and I've had nearly all of my life to live as a Christian. But you know what I've discovered throughout my life? I've discovered that I still have the potential to sin. Years of Christianity have not obliterated that potential for sin. And in fact, I find that at times I do fall into it. And to be perfectly honest with you, if, if, I, if I tell you otherwise, I'd be telling you a lie and thus I'd be into another sin. And in case you won't admit it, so do you. Even if you're a Christian, there's not a day that you can go without sinning. Now, maybe you don't classify that as a bad a sin as some of the things that you read about in the newspaper and things that you see on television, but you are a sinner, just like I'm a sinner. And the thing about it is, God is really not too much concerned about our classifications of sin. How you and I view sin can never measure up to the way that God views it. Uh, if one simple sin, if you look at it this way, it was one simple sin that Adam for that, for that Adam was cast out of the garden, just one simple sin that he committed. The whole human race was plunged into darkness because of a very simple matter, the way that we would weigh it. I mean, what did Adam do? Well, all he did, he took a bite out of a, of a tree, a, a fruit that God said you can't, you're not supposed to eat. He ate of it, and then God just tossed him out of the garden. We'd look at that and we'd say, that's a very simple matter, just a very little sin. But by God's estimation, it was a sin so horrible, it was a crime so great, it was against the holiness of God so that it did plunge the whole human race into blackness and darkness and into despair because of that one sin. Now you think about that the next time that you enter into sin and you think that sin is little. Now if that, I think I told you about this before, but if that sin had been the first sin that was committed, it would have had an effect on all, just like Adam's sin did, if you had been the very first one to commit it. So when we become children of God, it really doesn't lessen this horrible transgression against God's holiness. Our sin is still a serious affront to God. But God is our Father. And Scripture says that he has forgiven us for Christ's sake. And every sin that we commit once we become Christians is covered underneath the blood of Christ. And so instead of casting us off for all of those horrible offenses that are against God's holiness, he still treats us as dear children, even when we're in the midst of all of our failures. Now, you look back in the Old Testament, and Israel was God's chosen people, and God's uh, patience with them, you read the story of what Israel went through, it's nearly inexplicable to try to figure out why God was so patient with Israel. I mean, they'd been in the midst of so many different transgressions. They fell into the worst sin that God told him to absolutely stay away from, and that was the sin of idolatry. That was the command that God put at the very top of the list. He gave him the commandments, and he said, you can't worship idols. Don't make an idol. Don't worship a false god. And so that was a given. I mean, that's right at the top, and that's exactly what they did. Nobody could argue with it, but that's what they did. And so Israel went into idolatry even after they had seen the way that God had crushed their enemies. I mean, through all the the, the plagues that he brought upon the Egyptians, what did they do? Well, the very first act, when they get out there into the middle of the wilderness and Moses up on Mount Sinai, they begin to worship a golden calf. 
I mean, they show a display of their ingratitude to God, and they make this calf and bow down to worship it. Right at the same time, while Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and God has given him the very command that says, you shall not have any other gods before me, and there they are, right down in the valley, while, while Moses is getting that command, and they're worshiping a golden calf. Now, it would have been just a small wonder if God should destroy them right then and there. But you know what God did? He had compassion upon them. And after repentance, he led them through the wilderness, and he still provided for them. Now, we know that story is just the tip of the iceberg of all the things that Israel went through. And the Old Testament uh, tells us so many of those things. And it follows all the way up to the statement that I quoted just a moment ago from Stephen And that was, they killed nearly every prophet that was sent to them. But you know what happened? God came back, and with compassion, he sent them one more prophet. And he sent them the greatest prophet of all. One more time, they sent a prophet, and that prophet was his only son. Now, that was Jesus, of course. And what did Jesus come to do? And who did he come to? Well, he came to the Jews. Now, we look at the history of Israel, and by all rights, we would say, why would God send Jesus to those people? I mean, choose somebody else. Look at their history. Why does he send them to them? And yet, that's who God sent them to, and God sent him to the house of Israel so that Jesus said, I'm not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that is simply amazing compassion, and that's what the Father does. Now, we see that the rejection of the Jews, and still how God kept coming back to them. Well, how much greater is the compassion that God has upon us? He saved us. He's called us out of our sins. And you know, we fall back into those same old sins many times that characterized our lives before. But he still treats us as a compassionate father. John said about him, he said, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, that was right after John said that God is light. He said, in God there is no darkness at all. You can't darken, you can't have sin, you can't have fellowship with God and sin at the same time. That sin has to be removed. And through Christ, that's what God has done. He grants forgiveness of our sins, and in his love and his compassion, he desires our fellowship. Now let me digress for just a moment where I started with this point. I've been dealing here with what happens after we become Christians. Now, we go on sinning. Uh, That's not an habitual form of life for a Christian because according to 1 John and something we discussed this past Sunday morning in our forum class, if we're habitual sinners, uh, John says that means that you are not born of God. But we still do sin, and those sins are horrible. The sin that we commit after salvation... I guess you could say in one sense, it's worse than the sin that we committed before. Then we were, didn't know Christ, we didn't know anything about God, but now we've received Him and, and taken all the benefits from Him, and we sin against Him. How much more heinous is that sin after we've been saved? And yet the Bible still says that God loves us, and He has compassion upon us when we commit those sins. But let's do remember this. There was a time when we weren't God's children. We were born in sin. Uh, before we came to Christ in faith. We weren't reconciled to him. We were enemies. And in that state, not being his children, he had compassion. He saw where we were headed. And if he had not intervened in where we were going, we would have taken a headlong plunge into hell. 
But salvation came to us, not because God was our Father, but because he's Christ's Father. He loved him as his own son, his dearly uh, beloved son, and, and he agreed. He agreed in that commission that he gave Christ, that everyone that the son came to die for and to redeem, he would become their father too. And so thus we have that relationship with Christ that's indispensable. Now, despite the popular notion that God loves everybody regardless, well, the truth is that God loves no one except for Christ. I mean, would anyone like to argue that God loves people who are in hell? You know, I, I'd, like, I'd like to take the negative side of that argument all day long. Smile, God loves you is more discriminating than most people think. God does not have children in hell, and so therefore, he doesn't love people who are in hell. And if you think that he does, then you have a God whose love is so diminished that it would be meaningless. Those he loves, he saves, and he saves them for Christ's sake. Now, I haven't said anything about benevolence and what God does in this life and so forth, but once a person dies and goes to hell, the love of God, God has no benefit for people that are in hell. There's no love that's shown there. So the fact that God would have compassion on me and that he would save me shows that I have a special relationship that anyone who doesn't know Christ doesn't have. I have a different relationship with with Christ because of my faith in him, a different relationship with God because of faith in Christ. So he's truly my father. And so I stand in wonder and amazement at such love. So why do I glorify him? What should I do? I should glorify him. Jeremiah said, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. So glorify God because of his compassion. We sin, and yet he forgives because he is our Father. Now this next one, I'm not going to spend a great deal of time with because we're going to cover this extensively uh, in the next few weeks as we're continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. and We'll get into the Lord's Prayer. But we glorify God, our sixth reason, is because of the communication with the Father. Now the communication that we're talking about, of course, is prayer. God has devised a means of communication. Now in case you haven't noticed or no one has told you, Uh, We live in a material body, and we live in a physical world. Now, if you are from the cult of the Church of Christ scientists, then you may not be too sure, and you may dispute the fact that you are actually materially here. And here's what they say. They say the universe and humans are reflections of God's likeness and image, which is spirit, without beginning or end. Illusions or delusions of a material world and material body result from error in thought and ignorance of the true and only nature of reality, which is spiritual. God is all that truly exists. So I don't know, maybe some of you are a little bit mixed up about whether you're actually here tonight or not. Maybe maybe you're really not. You just think that you're here. And I I start thinking about things like that, and I sort of get a headache. So I'm not going to talk about that anymore. I mean, I guess I have a headache. I don't know, headaches may not exist. And if if I don't exist, they don't exist. But the whole point I'm trying to make here is that we are... We have two different worlds, so to speak. We have a material, physical world, and we have an immaterial, spiritual world. And if you've noticed this, if you're very astute, I talk about God a lot, and I talk about the reality of God, and I talk about God's presence, but there's not a single one of us here tonight who's ever seen God. 
We've never seen him. I tell you that he's here, but you haven't seen him. So that tells me then that God has a form of communication that is outside of the physical. There's a spiritual world out there that's unseen, and we wouldn't know that unless we had contact with it, a communication form that tells us that God is real. Now, you got me so far on this? Now, I'm not talking about communicating with the dead or anything like that and having seances, of course not. But one of the interesting things about this is that in the Old Testament, God revealed himself at certain times to Old Testament characters. There were times when God would audibly speak to people. And God still, though, didn't allow anybody to see him. The Scripture says that no one has ever seen God and lived, and so that means that no one is able to actually see God in his glory. Now, that is incomprehensible. I really don't know what would happen if all of a sudden God decided to display his glory just openly and let everybody see it. I don't know what would happen. I suppose maybe we'd all be vaporized or something. I I just don't know. We can't see God in his unveiled glory. Uh, The example, of course, that we have of this is from Moses when he was up on Mount Sinai. And there he was in the presence of God. But God did not allow Moses to see him. But Moses, being there in the presence of God, uh, caused a bright and shining light to come upon his face. And so when Moses came down from the mountain, the people couldn't even look upon him. They couldn't speak with him because of that light. He'd been in the presence of God. And so Moses had to veil his face. Now, that kind of gives you an idea uh, what it must be like then to see the unveiled glory of God. They couldn't even... Moses was just reflecting the glory of God. He wasn't the source. So there were times when people did know God's presence, and God gave evidence for different things, like miracles that were performed, and sometimes God, or people heard God speak. And then certainly God did make his presence known in the communication of prayer. But the thing about prayer is that the Jews never had a sense that they could relate to God in a personal way as their father. Now, I'm not going to go much into that now because it's going to come up when we study the Lord's Prayer. But something changed between or from the Old Testament till you get to the New Testament because in John chapter 1, we're told that Jesus Christ is the visible manifestation of God the Father. Now, you can't see God because he's a spirit, but if God should become a man, then, of course, you'd be able to look at him. And so when God did become man, the change was so radical that it changed the way that we viewed God. In the flesh, God became personal. And so Jesus began to speak about a personal relationship with the Father. Now, the Jews were very reserved about this. They they didn't relate to God in that way. But Jesus, they noticed, was very intimate in his comments about God. His interaction with the Father taught the disciples that God was not impersonal. God is not detached. God is personal enough that you can communicate with him freely, just as you would with an earthly father. Now, Jesus showed that with an intimate word, and this is the word Abba. In Mark, we read, And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but what thou wilt. Abba is a word that's a little bit difficult in translation, but probably the closest that we could come to it is the word daddy. I don't know if you noticed or not, but we actually sang that word in in the song that we sang tonight, God our Father, we adore thee. And it says, Abba's praises we proclaim. And that word Abba is a word that, I said, most closely translates to daddy. Now, there was no Jew that would ever address God as daddy. 
They didn't think of God in that way. And so Jesus introduced this new way of thinking about God. And the idea is that God is a father. He's like the guy, in, in one sense, who lives in the house with you, that you can speak with, that you can have a relationship with. Paul used the word in a most definitive way in Galatians chapter 4. He says, And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Now, if you look at that, he says, Because you are sons. Now, let me back up just a couple of verses in Galatians and read what precedes that statement. In verse number 4, it says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so God sent forth Christ, who is his Son, and the Son called him Abba. And the Son came to redeem, and he did redeem a certain group of people, and those that he redeemed became sons of God also. And because they are sons, according to verse number 6, Paul says we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. Now, the point that I'm trying to make with all of this is that there is a reason to glorify God because as our Father, he's made prayer something that's not like an impersonal phone call from a computer. This is your Father. He has a blood relationship to you. And that blood relationship is because of Jesus Christ. Jesus shed his blood and gave us that blood relationship. And so that means that the Almighty God of the universe has taken the creature, the one who is sinful and deplorable, one who is not fit to come into his presence, not even really fit to exist in this universe, and he's taken that creature to his bosom and has become a real father to him, a personal, intimate father. I don't know if all of that reaches you or not, but this is why Paul makes no complaints. He doesn't cry and whine about anything that happens to him because he has this relationship with God. And then after all of that's happened, to think that God had made him a part of his eternal plan, that he is an apostle of Christ, he's a preacher of the gospel, God has taken him and given him a relationship that's not like the relationship of an angel. And certainly we'd think that'd be good enough if I could just be an angel. No, it's better than that. And God has taken him and made him something not just like a slave to him and a servant. Now, we are servants of Christ, but these types of servants that we are are servants who can call God our Father. And so he's given us that special relationship close enough that the Word of God says that we can call him Daddy. And then you think about that and think that it was God's plan to bring you through suffering, to bring you peace and contentment in your life and then further reward you because of your faithfulness to God? Isn't that enough to make anybody stop and give glory to God? And so how does it come out? I mean, when, when, when Paul realizes that, he thinks about these things. How does it come out? Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what a doxology we have there. I I don't think this is lightly considered. Paul doesn't throw in verse number 20 as an afterthought to this letter. Glorify God because he is your father. He communicates with you as a beloved father to a beloved son. Now, I think all of that's worth considering. Now, that's six reasons. I have four yet to go. I I don't have enough time to go on and take on another one. So we're going to stop there and... We'll unhook things, and next time we come back to the subject, we'll hook the train back up and get to car number seven, and we'll talk about a seventh reason why that we give glory to God. 
And so I think all of us could say with Paul, to God be the glory. To God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence tonight, we are just so thankful that we can call you our Father and that we really understand what that means when we call you Father, that there's this close, intimate relationship that you desire for us to speak with you, uh, to make our hearts known to you, and we don't even understand how much that you really want to bless us. We don't desire to pray as much as you desire to bless us. Lord, we just pray that you would open up our hearts to the truth of your word and help us to contemplate, to think about the great things that you have done for us and how could we help but stop and say glory to God, glory to God in the highest. We just thank you, Lord, for all that you've done through your Son, Jesus Christ. Bless us now, Lord, as we leave this place and we give you the praise for all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's